Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, entrepreneur and business mentor, Bianca Miller-Cole. And over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Lord Michael Hastings, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite pieces of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me today is Ricky Blue. Discussing music streaming is technology, the great racial equalizer. Welcome, Ricky. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. No, I'm great. Thank you. Even better to be speaking to you. So to get started, the first track you have chosen is Budgie Banton, Untold Stories. Does yes. that hold a special meaning for you? Um, yes, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, Budgie Banton was the, the, the first artist that I felt like was my artist, if that makes sense. Um, I, I first saw him perform at Carnival um in 1993 i think it was um and he just blew me away and i just i just felt like i just thought he was amazing and he was just my 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 favorite artist and he was the first artist i can identify with me saying that this is my artist and this is what i'm listening to if you see what i mean okay and uh obviously there's an incredible uh string of music successes to your name some making history arguably i think people would refer to you as a music mogul uh, but I'm keen to know a little bit more about that background that shaped you. So as one of four children, tell me a little bit about, you know, Ricky growing up as a boy in Hackney. What was that like? You know, it was a really, um, it was a really fun time. Um, and it's funny because you, you look back on it now and you, and you, and you realise that there, there, there was a little bit of, of, of danger growing up in, in, in the council estate. But it just all seemed like endless amounts of fun. And I think... Being the youngest of four, um, I was always very well insulated and protected because I'm, you know, you're the baby basically. So you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are much older than you because they're friends of your of your siblings, etc. And yeah, we, we grew up in a quite strict um, West Indian household. My, my my parents were immigrants from Dominica, and and they, you know, basically once the door was closed, you was in their household. You was basically in Dominica. You you wasn't in England, you know. <laughs> so um, we had a very a very strong and, and, milit- and militant upbringing with, with, with our parents in the household. So with your parents arriving kind of the tail end of the Windrush era, did they ever discuss with you their kind of early British experiences? 
Yeah, I remember my dad telling me about when he first um, arrived in, in England and, and then the travel down to London. Uh, if my memory serves me right, I think, I think the boat arrived in Southampton or Portsmouth, one of those two. Um, and then, then they got a train down to Victoria. And literally, he's come out of Victoria and he, he was just astounded by how much smoke there was. Because everything, I guess, then was very factory-based and whatnot. And it was just all very, like, you know, there's no sunshine, this grey, you know, it, it, it was like that. And I, one of the early things I, I remember him saying as well was that making that journey to um, to Paddington, because that, that was where he, he was going to be setting up and where, where his family were, um, they basically couldn't get a taxi for, you know, we know the reasons why they didn't really stop for black people then. Um, it's a struggle now sometimes, to be honest with you. But anyway, it, def it definitely wasn't happening then. Um, and I, if, I, if my memory serves me right, he had to walk from Victoria to uh, where he was going in Notting Hill um, because yeah, he, he could he couldn't get a, he couldn't get a taxi. So th that, that's that's quite a, an, an early um, understanding of what the experiences were on on, on first arrival. So you, you mentioned your parents were quite strict. You had that kind of strict Caribbean upbringing, which I love. Um, but you also mentioned that you feel like you grew up in a kind of dog-eat-dog atmosphere where there was that temptation to, to join a gang or, or to be, you know, fall victim to that kind of lifestyle. Did that ever happen to you? Well, it, it definitely was um, what was something that, that, that required navigation because basically... Um, in my household was a lot was a lot of love, a lot of togetherness, et cetera. And then literally once you stepped outside, you, you, you needed a completely different armor for the world because love didn't really live out there like that, if you see what I mean. If you if you were too nice, you'd probably be taken advantage of, or you know. So I, I had to ad adopt um at times adopt a, a, a different persona once I left the house to navigate the environment that I was in, if that makes sense. And that's not to say that everything was horrible because it wasn't all horrible. A lot of things were, as I say, were fun and, and all the rest of it, but it's, it's a tough environment. And what, what, what we, I guess, didn't know at that time is that so, so many people who grow up in those impoverished environments don't have much. And so you, you, you end up taking from other people what you can. And sometimes it's just the energy. Sometimes I just don't feel very good about myself. So if you're too happy for me, that makes me more uncomfortable about myself. So I need to take your happiness almost. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. it, 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 you know, it, it, it evolves into situations, rivalries, and things can, can go very left and, 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 and did at occasions. I, I was fortunate though, that um, I think one, one of my saving graces was I, I had both parents in my house and, and they were both very vigilant. So, you know, there was a point when I was about 14, I think I was when I started carrying a knife. Um, and it wasn't because I wanted to hurt anybody. It was, it was because everyone else had one. And it, it right. started to become less about if you could fight. Like as, as a kid, it's like, if you, if you could fight and you could play football, you was, you was fine, if you see what I mean. And then it, it started to shift and, and, and things became a bit different. And, you know, it, it felt like there was a point definitely where I felt like I, I, I maybe needed to protect myself from what everyone else, well, not everyone else, but what some other people may be doing or, or carrying. I can think of two instances where that could have gone very wrong for me. Um, but fortunately, you know, it never really progressed into anything. And, and not too long after that, my, my dad confiscated my knife. And I, I don't know if, if there was maybe a tinge of relief when, when it was taken from me. Um, because I never got another one. And as, don't get me wrong, I'm sure my dad had some harsh words for me. But you know what young kids are like. You know, you, if you really wanted to get another one, you just would have and would have 
you sure. thought to yourself, I could probably hide this one better, if you see what I mean. Sure, but sure. between between whatever it was that he said to me and probably how I was genuinely feeling inside about it, it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. It was something that I was doing because other people were doing it. And I think there may be even been, as I say, a sense of relief in him confiscating it from me. And I, I never got a knife again. It's important that you had your dad playing that role as a role model. And I understand there was another person who played that role in your life, your Jamaican head teacher. Ah, Mr. Harvey. Yes. Yes, Mr. At, Harvey. At my at my primary school, yeah, we had a we had a Jamaican um head teacher who was very charismatic. He was like, you know, and 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 think of it in old currency. And in that time, he was like Bill Cosby to me. You know, he he, he was that wholesome father figure. Um, and subconsciously, I think having, uh, you know, a black head teacher who who was so confident and and who was, you know, really running the school subconsciously it gives you a little bit of ident identity confidence because it's like, well, he's running the place and he's a black man almost, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. But he was also very strict, to be fair. He was really, really strict. Like he treated us in particular, like we was, you know, maybe his grandchildren or, or, or his nephews, basically. He, he was very strong on us when he was ready to be strong and he wouldn't hesitate to call your mum in and, and, and let her know what was really going on and, you know, put down some sanctions. So, you know that 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 was a was was a massive influence, and there was also um uh, a Jamaican family that I grew up with because my mum my mum always worked, and so they used to take me to nursery when she when she went to work, and I spent a lot of time growing up in that household, and they were some of the they probably were the nicest people I've 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 ever known outside of blood relatives, if you see what I mean. Just, just a beautiful family, you know, beautiful God fearing people, and they also had holy fun. Like their, their, their house was so fun in terms of like music and everything that was going on in the background there culturally it was very rich. So, and I, I credit um, the Barrett family, I, I credit them um, with, I think, giving me a, 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 another sense of identity and, and, and cultural um, dexterity that, that, that I got in my upbringing, you know? Because in, in my household, as I say, my, my parents being Dominican, there was a lot of soca music getting played and other than that, my mum loved Gregory Isaac. So you'd get a little bit of reggae and whatnot on a Sunday when you're cleaning, when you're cleaning the house. Um, and then when I, when I was at the Barrett's house during the week, their, their eldest son, um, Carlton, used to pick me up and Carlton had just come, come from Jamaica, basically. So, Carl, I mean, up to now, to be honest, if you, if, you, if you speak to Carlton now, you'd think Carlton just came last week. <laughs> and, and, and Carlton's probably been there for 45 years now. But then he was fresh and, you know, he'd be walking around with me on one shoulder, his, his ghetto blaster on the other shoulder. So music and all of that was always around me from really, really early. And as I say, it was, while there were some dangers on the estate, there was a lot of fun and a, and a sense of community also. And so I can see why you were influenced by music in your upbringing, but was going into music as a career, was that a deliberate choice? I wouldn't say so. Um, I was I was in a music group with some friends in school, which was just fun and us hanging out, to be fair. Um, and then after school, it, it, it kind of, we continued to do it. And then one of the guys who used to be in our group went on to, to have a bit of success and got signed as an artist. Um, he, he was a, a rapper called Iceberg Slim at the time, and he ended up getting a, a record deal. And so that just made us feel like, well, he's, do, he's done it, so we can do it. And, we can take this a step further. So, you know, between that and I think watching the Soul Solid crew on, on I think it may have been the Mobile Awards or the Bricks where they came flying in. But between those two things, it really felt like 
we could do that because you are seeing young people or knowing young people like yourself who are starting to forge careers. And so it was like an, 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 early, an early desire that, that turned into you know, a, a career pursuit. But I didn't know, I definitely didn't know it at that stage that it was going to be that way. I love that story. And I remember that, that MOBO awards with uh, So Solid Crew flying in. Pivotal yeah. moment. Um, okay, so as we move into to section two then, with your next track you've chosen is Jay-Z, Never Change. Mm-hmm. Why so did you choose that track? That was like, he was probably the, se- the, the, the second artist that was my artist, if you see what I mean, a bit later on in life. So I'm, I'm probably... I probably got introduced to Jay-Z's music when I was about 16. I remember I, I had a cassette tape of um, Reasonable Doubt. Um, and initially, as, as I had said, just, just touching it, growing up, I was really into um, reggae and, and, and what was dancehall music at the time. My friends were all into rap. I wasn't really into rap and hip hop, but it kind of sh- it kind of shifted in that period, I, I guess, when hip hop just really, I, I, I really embraced it probably from, well, 1993 onwards, to be honest, because I remember the first, rap album I had was, was, was um, Ice Cube's Lethal Injection, which came out in 93, which we'll come back to that 93 thing later. Um, so J- Jay-Z was, became my favorite rapper. Um, his thing was, I guess it was always about hustle and about business and about, you know, um, trying, to, trying to better yourself. And there was always a level of intellect to, to, to it that I, I guess I, I, I was endeared to and, 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 and respected. Like some of my friends, for example, would, would comment that I, I was always into certain types of rap. But even though it was still street rap and he was rapping about crime, he was doing it intelligently and his approach was intelligent. And I, and I resonated with that, if that makes sense. Um, the Blueprint happens to be my favorite Jay-Z album. And that was, that, that was probably my favorite song on that album. Um, and so that, that's why I chose that album because I feel like it, it really does um, support where, where I was at at that stage in my life. And, and, and as, as a young man becoming a, a, young, a young businessman with aspirations, what Jay-Z was doing and had done with his crew at, at Rockefeller Records in having a joint venture with, with Universal and, it, and they, they were just entrepreneurs and I was inspired by that. So there was all of those reasons why. I understand that you then went on to meet Jay-Z. How did uh, that meeting compare with your expectations of him? Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a massive jump later. Um, and by the time I met, I met him, I was, I was working with um, my, my business partners and mentors at the time, and they had a venture with him. Um, and so I couldn't be a fan. I wasn't allowed, not, not, not that anyone told me this, but I told myself that, that I couldn't allow myself to be the fanboy that I really was, because I really want to go up to him and say, and recite his lyrics to him. That's what I really want to do. But it wouldn't be the professional thing to do, if that makes sense. So on a few occasions at events and, you know, in, in, in passing backstage and whatnot, and in, and in, and in, the, in these um, office on, on, on an occasion, He's just always been very normal and very regular, which him and his team actually are. Like if you if you're around or you meet his his inner circle and the people that he's had around him, who is who you will become accustomed to before you really meet him like that or get to know him like that. Um, and they're all just like regular New Yorkers who are very similar to regular Londoners, if if that makes sense. Relatively young um, black guys who have, who have you know, been able to navigate the environments they came from and, and, and grow into 
really great businessmen and and but they still had all of their personality all of their character they hadn't they hadn't become somebody else they were just better versions of themselves if, if, if that makes sense um so it was really it, it was it's always been a really insightful and, and a nice experience um having met him and, and met some of his core team and knowing some of his core team as as i do um over the years that we that we've kind of worked together so you know that was a positive thing for sure I love that story because they always say don't meet your icons right they never live up to expectations yeah, yeah. but from your perspective you're saying he absolutely lived up and surpassed oh, your expectations yeah no he did he did um he he's he, he's the same way as you as you as you would imagine him to be via, via his music he's very witty charismatic and he's, he's just a, a, a generally nice person and you know I, I've, I've actually been quite fortunate in that, in that sense in terms of meeting you know, for the want of a better term, meeting your idols and having very good experiences because my, my biggest idol as a kid actually was Ian Wright. Um, and when I met him, he was, I was afraid to meet him because I didn't want him to mess it up, to be honest with you. Because, you know, as, 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 a, as a kid, I, I had my dad, my uncles, my brother, and then there was Ian Wright, who was almost like my surrogate big brother who I've never met, if you see what I mean. And so meeting him years later um, via music, I actually met him at the Brits. Um, he, he was a guest of the bottom. Of, of a brand who was sponsoring the, the event. And um, we, were, we were there that year. I think, I think that was the year Emily Sande had won quite big that year. And, and I met him and, you know, I, I've gone on to, to meet him on several occasions after and, and, I, and I'm good friends with, with his manager and, and, and him now. And we speak, you know, we speak quite regularly and he's just been amazing. Like he's, he, he's, he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's just a brilliant human. Okay. So, your music career, when it first started out, right, it was rap. Yeah. Are you, uh, so have you got some skills? Some rapping skills still there? <laughs> um, I'm sure if I put my mind to it, I could deliver something. <laughs> However, um, what, what I learned um, being that I've, I've worked with some of the, some of the you know, most creative people in, in this country and people at the top of their game. And what I've learned is that I was never really an artist. Um, I, in principle, I, I, I kid you not, and I, I say this with, with no ego, if I actually want to do something, I can pretty much, pretty much put my mind to it and be decent at it, if that makes sense. It's not, it doesn't mean that the thing's meant for you. It just means you've got a good focus and a good sense of how to do something. Do you see what I mean? Um, and I say that purely because the day that I stopped rapping, um, I never rapped again. Like I didn't even scribble some lines in a notepad or wrapped to myself in the shower or and I felt that when, when you've got that when that's your gift and that's your your passion whether or not you're pursuing it professionally or not it's something you you can't hide from yourself if that makes sense mm -hmm. and again having been around some genuinely talented creative artists they couldn't be anything else but artists if you see what I mean like True. if yes. if, if if Naughty Boy wasn't an artist, I don't, I don't know what he would be. Uh, if if Wizkid was an artist, I have no idea. I couldn't see him working at the post office, for argument's sake. Whereas I could have been a good postman, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I get it. Um, so, yeah. So what was innate to you was being born an entrepreneur, right? That sounds like that was what came naturally to you from the story about, you know, Avon and the 32 Barator. Entrepreneurship was, was your thing. That's what I've learned about myself via all of those iterations. And, you know, as, as you touched upon, you know, when we, when we were, when I was embarking on my rap career, we couldn't get a record deal. So 
we we formed our own record label, started selling our own music. Um, and you know, we 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 had a plan to sell ten thousand copies, and I mean, we we was all gassed up and and you know, giving each other that yeah, that's what we're gonna do. And then we got our first two thousand CDs, right? And it's like, all right, now we've got to go and sell these. Do you know what I mean? And there was literally five of us, so we took 400, 400 units each, and everyone had to go off and sell them. And 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 the, the method that I used, because I, I remember as a kid, my mum and my sisters used to have the the Avon lady or the Avon guy come round selling products, and you would go and sell it on. And so that was the the, the method that we that that I I implemented was all right. I'm, I'm going to give it to you for two pound fifty. You can sell this for a fiver, and you keep the other two fifty. So it motivates you to to, to go. And I, I learned that from that, and that, that's where that came from. And we did really well. We ended we ended up selling the ten thousand CDs, and it, it you know it was a mass, it was a massive achievement at the time. Um, but the the downside to it was is that when we got there, we was waiting for something to happen at that point, and, and nothing actually happened. It was like okay, we've sold ten thousand now. Now what? Um, no. Yeah, and it, so there was a little bit of an anticlimax. However, it it just led to that whole thing of next. Like I'm, I'm always thinking about next i don't dwell on now i'm always thinking about next and i think that's one of the things that's enabled me to keep working at, at, at a high level and with you know quality clients throughout my career is because i never dwell on just what's today and and and, and you know over rely on what's happening today i'm always thinking about okay what, what what's next um and yeah that that journey of selling the records and selling the cds and building the street teams and whatnot it 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 allowed me to meet a lot of people. Um, and I, I met I met some people who were just starting a TV channel, which ended up becoming Channel U, which, you know, went on to be, you know, what people will widely consider now one, one of the most pivotal moments in, in Black British youth culture. And, and probably, probably the most important piece of, you know, of, of the formats that gave these young kids that are doing amazingly well today, like your you know, your Storms, your Jay Hustles, your Daves, they, they would have grown up watching that as a norm. Whereas the generation before them, we could only ever watch MTV based on watch what Americans were doing. We didn't, have, we didn't have a way of looking at ourselves and being inspired. So what we did is we copied a lot of what other people were doing because that's what our main influence was. So on, 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 my, on my journey of, of, you know, trying to grow what I was doing at the time, it just led me to, a, to another opportunity, which was Channel U, and I ended up managing the channel um, and that just opened up so many other doors, and you know, um, I met I met so many different people in that in that period of time, and I met two two gentlemen, Tim Blacksmith and Danny D, who you know later on became my 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 mentors and business partners. Met them at that time, and and they invited me to a showcase um, for an, an act called the Brand New Heavies. And to be honest with you, I wasn't really that I can't say I wasn't even into. I wasn't that aware of even who they were, to be honest with you, but I, f I think there's just something in me that I, I, I will always take a look at something. So I was like, you know, I'll come down there and I went there and it's probably, I, I, I have to, that trip, if I didn't go on that trip, I don't know if, I, if my career would be how and where it is now. I'm not saying I never would have become anything if I didn't meet the brand new heavies or I, I didn't go to their showcase. But it was definitely a key moment in, in, in my journey because I, I had an experience there that made me humble myself down and realize that what I was doing was, and what I was a part of at Channel U was very niche and it was, it was very specialist. And there was a whole other world out there that existed in the, in the business of music that didn't rely, need, or even know about Channel U. Right. Um, so it, it really sparked my attention of, okay, there's further into this jungle to actually 
find and discover and, and it set me on that path of discovery and you know um, th th those two men really really helped me because they they opened my eyes in in that way and I, I feel like that's exactly what he was trying to do when he invited me to that if you see what okay. I mean I feel like he yeah. wanted me to see rather than telling me it I think he wanted me to see there's so much more out here and and and, and you can be a part of that um and after that we, we just kept in touch all the time built a rapport and he introduced me to the principle of publishing because he was a publisher and he encouraged me that, you know, if I, if I ever found a really talented writer and, you know, wanted to work with them, you know, we should, we should, we should keep in contact. And naturally I started just looking for songwriters. I want to ask you a question about that, but before I ask that question, I just want to move into your third track. Uh, your final track, Bridget Banton, uh, close one yesterday, another conscious reggae track. What was the appeal there for that, that choice? Um, I, I was struggling to find a, if you like, a, a current song that, that kind of represented where I, where I ended up. Um, and so I, I, I went and chose a song that has been a reoccurring and a revisited record because of the sentiment of the record. Um, it's, it's, at this stage in his career, he's, he's, deep, he's deeply entrenched in the Rastafarian faith. Um, so it, it's very spiritual, it's uplifting. It's, it's also humbling because I, I always find it, it, it reminds me to, to keep my feet on the ground. And it, it, it's just a very wholesome and warm record that if I feel you know, down about life at times or whatnot, it picks me up. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm too high on life, it, it brings me down to level me. So it's, it's just one of those important songs that I always, I always go back to. Hmm. So that's why I picked it. Okay. So going back to the question I wanted to ask you about uh, your whole, the whole kind of a and experience of trying to find songwriters. Do you think that partially you didn't look within Channel U because, you know, that type of music didn't at that stage have the level of credibility that it has now? Like the Kano's of the world and so on. They didn't have the respect that I think they have now garnered where people, you know, worldwide talk about Stormzy, they talk about Grime, they talk about Wiley, you know, is that, is that part of the reason? I think that that's very possible that I may, may, may have played a part in it, but in hindsight, you, it, it can look that way. But in reality, at the time, I didn't, I didn't know that because none, none, of, none of the things you've mentioned that are true now were even remotely, you wouldn't even be thinking about that at that point. Just so yeah. I mean, like, I remember going to Murky Fest a few years back and watching on the, on the balcony in awe that you know this this young guy from South London has sold out a festival in a whole different country, mm -hmm. because I remember a time where if you if you sold five hundred tickets at Cargo in Shoreditch, you was the guy. <laughs> Just see what I mean. So what what this generation are, are achieving is quite like it's quite mind boggling, and and you could you couldn't have imagined that level of scale. You just couldn't have. Yeah. So then you moved on to utilizing technology to find other artists. I understand MySpace was a, was a big part of that. How were you going about finding that talent? Yeah, at the, at the time, after, after discovering Labyrinth, um, the, the next artist that I came across was, was Naughty Boy. And, and I came across him on MySpace, which was the popular um, social media platform at the time. You don't think of someone, you could just type it in and they would come up there. And that, that was where I, I discovered Naughty Boy and, and reached out and contacted him. Um, and I met with him. He had a, a small setup in the in the in the in the in the garage of his parents' home, um, and he had he had been working with Emily Sande, who he had been flying down from Aberdeen 
and they had some like literally amazing records that later on went on to be massive hit records. But at the time, he, he had these songs just on his on his laptop in the, in, in his parents' home, you know. And I feel the music was really exciting. It was really broad, and you know, we signed them up straight away, and I've managed them ever since. It's been like eleven years. Emily Sunday, who we who we later signed for publishing. Um, and then went on the journey of, with, with, with Emily and the creation of her album, being that we had three different clients that we managed who produced like maybe 85% of the album in Naughty Boy, Mole Jam and Crazy and Hoax at the time. And then Emily went on to achieve such great success with her, with her album and her, and her singles. It just really catapulted, catapulted things even wider than it already was off the back of what was already happening with Labyrinth's work on Tiny Temper. And that's a good point to, to bring us to, actually. So the Labyrinth and Tiny Temper moment, obviously they came together, they created a huge track with Parcel. How did that, you know, or how important was that in your early success in your career? Yeah, um, La Labyrinth and, and Tiny Temper's collaboration and the success of it was, was massively important to my career. Um, it was the it was the first real success, commercial success that I was having in my career, um, and that I'm associated to in, in, on this side of the business. And being that it was a number one record in the country, it, it's just massive. Mm. And you made history with that track, right? So it brought you an unexpected award, some global notoriety. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we, we ended up winning our Publisher of the Year at the Ivan Novello Awards, which, as you can probably imagine, I'd never heard of before. Um, and, you know, well, that's like the biggest songwriting award in the world. So literally this event happens every year at one of the Park Lane hotels, no cameras, it's not on TV, and the biggest songwriters in the world, present and past, are all there being recognised for their work. So you know, being in a room of, of, of sitting in the same room as Sting while, while you're receiving this award was just like, you know, it, it was mind-blowing. And if I, if I bring it up to date, you then launched uh, 93 Records with your co-founder, Glyn, and that partnership obviously was with Sony. Was there any significance in the name since 93? Yeah, we, we launched since 93 Records pretty much off the back of our individual and collective successes. Glenn's one of the most decorated A&Rs in this country. Um, and his, his record goes back to stuff like, you know, the Soul Solid crew, Daniel Bedingfield, Craig David. So a lot of the early garage stuff, he was having massive hits from that era. Um, and then we met when I, when I was at Channel U and we just always remained, retained a, a good relationship and then worked together across Naughty Boy, who I, I, I manage, and he was the A&R was the at the label for that. Emily, who we published, he was the A&R for the records of that project. Um, Crepton Conan, who I managed, he was the, he was the a and who signed them to Virgin Records. So we ended up working across a multitude of artists and having success and failure also. But we, we, we had a great relationship throughout it all. And we got to a point in, in our you know, careers and we felt like a lot of the stuff that we were doing, we, we could pretty much do it for ourselves because we, we, we knew what we were doing now. Um, and so we, we, we spoke about the idea of us collaborating um, to work together on a, on a new venture, basically, which became Since 93 Records. Um, so as I say at the time, Glyn was working at, at Virgin. 
Um, I was, I, I was at the time, and I always was to be honest with you, independently running my own company. I rebranded my publishing and management companies to since 93, the year prior. Um, and so when his contract was coming to the end at Universal, he was looking for a new opportunity and decided that we would do something together. We had a meeting with Jason Eiley, um, who's the chairman of Sony, and you know he he believed in our ideal, he believed in our, in our, our vision, and you know we ended up doing basically you know what we thought we could do for ourselves. And yeah. what we where, where the the name came to us is you know as I say I had rebranded the year before to since '93 because I felt like I needed to build a, a, an identity, and you know I think I've touched upon the year '93 before when we was talking earlier and how important that year was for certain breakthrough artists with Bujabantin being one of those artists. The first rap album I listened to being Ice Cube's Lethal Injection, um, Dr. Dre's The Chronic, Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style. These are all albums from 1993. And mm. I have a theory that for, for, young, for young, young men, young boys, um, at the age of 14 is when you start to have your own grip on what you are interested in in life in terms of, you know, if you're not buying your own clothes, you're definitely saying to mom, please not those ones. Can I get these ones instead? You know, you know how you want to dress, you know what music you want to listen to. And I happen to have been 14 in, in, in 1993. So that, that's why the term since 93 was, 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 was coined from because it's music, sport, lifestyle and culture since 93. Um, and then myself and Glenn share a, a backdrop of, you know, early 90s music being what's this, as really... The, the period that really gave us our palette oh. for music. Yeah. And so we, sh we share that in common. And so since 93 Records was something that made sense to both of us in, in, in that sense. And that, that's, how, that's how the name and why the name is. And, and since then, you've been working with the kind of, I guess, the next generation of, of famous artists, Krepton Conan, who you mentioned, H, who you mentioned. And I guess the question then is, in, in the media, people often associate drill music or, you know, grime as glamorizing crime. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I, there is a lot, of, a lot of that talk of um, drill and, 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 and rap um, glamorizing crime. Um, I think it's quite unfair. And I, and I, and I say it because it, it, it comes from one lens. I, you know, touching upon some of the things we spoke about earlier, I, I came from an environment that was, that was rough. I myself carried a knife at a stage in my life. I explained the reasons why. I also explained why I stopped carrying a knife. Um, and, you know, I think that coming from the environment that I came up, I, I came from, it, it, give, it gives me the, the tools and, the, and, and the, the outlook to understand what is going on culturally. And ultimately, it's, what's happening now isn't much different than what was happening in, a in the time of grime music or garage music before it, or any youth culture music, youth music is always rebellious. Um, yeah. what, what we can't get away from is the fact that there, there are the, these, these stats and these incidents that are being very much pushed in our faces of young, particularly black kids dying from knife crime. And we definitely have a knife crime problem, but it is a society problem and not a music problem. The, the, the stabbings are not happening because of drill music. You take away drill music, what people have got doing in society is happening. And people, the powers that be, those who can influence it and not those who can have input need to channel that energy in the, in the right way. And rather than looking for something to blame, which is what drill music is, is one of the scapegoats. But as I say, I feel like youth, 
culture is always blamed and has been since, you know, going back to, you know, as far as you want to go back, whether, whether you're talking about reggae music or ska music or punk rock, adults always viewed that as mm, what, what are those what was that noisy stuff these kids are doing what these yes. rebellious kids or youth culture is always considered in that way um and i i i personally see a lot of young black men who are growing up in environments very similar to the one i grew up in who are trying to find their way through that you know and navigate their way out of you know what can be negative lifestyle choices which are there if you fall into those trappings um i very much believe that you know, growing up in 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 inner in city London, which probably and it will be no different to whether you're in Manchester or Birmingham either. But you're literally playing Russian roulette every day. You yeah. know, every time you step out your house, you're playing Russian roulette with you with, with with your life and which and which pathways, you know, incidents and situations can take you down. And I think it's interesting because when we think about music, I think often, as you as you mentioned, you know, there are certain powers that be can blame music for things that are going on that are negative uh, but equally music has a, a strong opportunity to be part of social change so obviously with the killing of uh, George Floyd and kind of the disproportionate impact that's had on black and Asian uh, populations how do you think music has helped or supported those changes it, bringing it to a positive note because I know we can always I think we can always focus on how music could negatively impact generations but what do you think the music industry has done to highlight social justice and change? I mean I would say that you've only got to look at um in order to see where music is you know is is supportive of social justice and change you've only got to look at the likes of Stormzy or Dave right and some of the songs that that they make and some of the lyrics that they sing um you know, they are, they are highlighting what is going on in, in politics because they're intelligent enough to. They, they, they come from the same environments that we've grown up in and that, that these young people find themselves in and, and yet can speak for them, but also understand what is, what is going on. And I think that some of the things that they're doing, Stormzy with his um, foundation where he's sending kids to, you know, privately, be, be privately educated, it's a, it's a phenomenal achievement. I look around the music industry and I see young black people, many of them with executive roles, earning good amounts of money, having success in their careers, running their own businesses. And I know that for, say, my generation at, at their age, there wasn't that. There, there, there was, that was, that, I'm not even sure you could say it was rare. I'm not, if there was one or two doing it, that, that was it, if you see what I mean. It was more than rare. And now I, I can walk in and out of any major record label in this country and, I, and I'm likely to see young, you know, brothers and sisters who are running their own business, as I say, or are young executives at these corporations doing amazing things. So while, while I, I accept that there are problems we have in society and there are problems that we have in our community, there are also amazing things that are happening via young people being able to go after their dreams, feeling encouraged and more importantly empowered that they can do it because they can see others just like them who are achieving and it helps many who are making that transition from making bad lifestyle choices to now deciding to make better ones. You know, that's a, that's a beautiful uh, note to end on. Um, so I've got two final questions for you. Unfortunately, we've been beaten uh, by the clock. So we always ask our guests to share their vision for the future and make a pledge. What is yours? Um, my, my, my vision for the future, I guess, would, would be that um, we can continue the trajectory that I touched upon just now, where 
via not just the creative industry, which is the industry I primarily work in, but in all sectors, the opportunities for young ethnic minorities, young black kids, etc., are going to be even greater than they are today. I've touched upon how much things have improved um, in terms of from my generation to this generation. And my hope is that that, that growth is con continues to accelerate. And my pledge is to do all I can do and all we can do as a company to support that growth and that development of the next generation in whichever way we're able to do that. And so with that in mind, are you, your label, your management company since 93, are you planning to sign up to the BBI Charter? 100% will be signing up to the BBI Charter, for sure. Perfect, I love that. Because you know what, this is all about change. And I think so much of what you've just said is, is a story of not just hope, but conviction and passion and ambition, but also the importance of networking. I think so often people yeah. think you get there by yourself, but actually your network can, can take you on a path that you just never expected. But of course, as you say, you put your mind to it. <laughs> you, you, could, you could do anything, but you've chosen this, this direction. I so agree with you. Like, you know, I think I, from, from a kid, you know, your, your parents will tell you stuff like the company you keep, you know, you've got to be careful of the company you keep. Um, and as much as what I said earlier in terms of you can't judge a book by its cover in terms of because you keep this company, it means you're just like them. But what also is true is the, the, the likelihood is, is that these influences can influence you. So the more, the, the, the smarter your circle is, the, the more advanced you have people around you, like being the smartest man in the room isn't helpful. It's always good to, to as you say, network. It's always good to grow. And it's better to be amongst those who can teach you something um, because you're, it's going to aid your growth and your development. So I always in, encourage that. Thank you so much, Ricky. Honestly, I could, I could ask you more questions. I find your career and, and your business so interesting and so inspiring. And it's you know, a very different industry to what I'm in, but you, the, the people you speak about and the journey is, is so interesting. So thank you so much for joining me today, opening up about your life and uh, your organization, but also your future plans and your pledges to, to, to do everything you can to improve the future uh, of our community. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review and leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fair society, please email us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.